Good to see you all. Hi, hello. Great to have you. This is, um, an, uh, we have only one more week of 1 Peter and then we are, are done. But uh, I think, I think for, for tonight, it's going to be a fun one. If you have your Bibles, feel free to open those up. Um, I want to title this message, Dear Friends, Suffer Well. Dear Friends, Suffer Well. If you have, have your Bibles, you can go to 1 Peter. I know, nice, nice title, right? Welcome to church. You can go ahead and stand as we read the word. This is um, 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to look in verses 12 to 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will it be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Lord, bless the reading of your word. Amen. You may be seated. Um, Rock Creek State Park. It's one of my favorite places in the world, I think. Um, the, re the reason is because this is, is uh, near and dear to our family's heart um, when we were in Nashville. Um, we had many opportunities to take the crew, all six of us, uh, to a place where there were waterfalls. And in these waterfalls, we would, um, we would hang out. The water was so cold. Um, especially in Nashville summers, that cold water felt so good. And, and there were these like little mini waterfalls and we would, the kids would go up 10 feet up, 15 feet up and jump off. Um, there came a point where we wanted to try our hand at something different. And right down kind of the, the space there, there was a waterfall that was about 35 feet high, 30, 30 35 to 40. I, thinking big, it may even be 50. It was probably only 25 feet, but it was tall. It was, I felt tall, right? Um, and so my, my son, Nathaniel, who turns 20 today, so if you're watching Nathaniel, happy birthday. Um, so I had to throw in an illustration with my man. Um, and so if you know Nathaniel, Nathaniel is severely farsighted. What that means is that he can see a mile away. He just can't see the Cheerio, like, like his hand right? Um, he, his eyes cross, and so he's had glasses his whole life. Well, he said, Dad, I want to go up, and I want to jump off of this cliff. And I said, well, buddy, you don't have 
you, you, you've, the only thing you have to see is glasses, and we can't take those. So we're going to have to leave the glasses, and I'm going to guide you up this cliff. We go up, again, let's just say it's 35 feet. We go up this, this crag, this, this, this nasty, um, intense cliff. And at the top of the cliff, we were surveying, and I'm second-guessing. I'm like, I'm a terrible father right now. I'm leading my son, who can't see, up a cliff, expecting him to jump off said cliff. So I, as a good father, I go first. Um, and, and I jumped off the cliff. And I said, buddy, before you jump, make sure that you just jump as far out as you can, but, but make sure that you, you, if, if you hear my voice, even though you can't see me, when you look over, it's going to be foggy. When you look over, you're not going to be able to see a thing. But just know I'm down there. Um, you, you, you can play the clip. So um, he climbs up, and... Um, this is the waterfall. I am down at the bottom, and he jumps off. And as soon as he hit the water, he came up, and he heard my voice, and he, he swam to me. And that, that moment of him climbing, looking over into the abyss of the unknown and following my voice was a moment that my man grew up. Peter is talking about a church looking over into the abyss of suffering, knowing that one has gone before him. There's, there's a man who had suffered in Jesus, and he is inviting this church, follow my voice. Bear my name, look over into the abyss, in spite of the unknowns and the fears and the insecurities and the costs, I want you to immerse, I want you to jump in. I'll catch you. This is what Peter is saying in this text. And I, what I love so, so much about it is that he, he starts it off with a simple word, beloved. Love how he He's about to, to talk very intensely again. This is the last section of, of this book. And he's going to repeat himself a little bit. But before he repeats himself, before he says a word, he says one word. Beloved. To be beloved of God means that you are the object of God's limitless love. His love has the power, the resources, and the will to fully and consistently display that love. He bends time, space, history for the flawless perfection of his love towards you. God's love is it's tethered to the immovable anchor of the Father's love from his Son, with whom you and I are identified because of faith. What, what, what I love about this word, beloved, is that it's bigger than the suffering they're going to endure, but it's also bigger than the potential failure in this process of suffering. The reason we know that is because of the one who's saying this letter, Peter. 
Peter knows what it's like to navigate a fire and fail at a fire. Do you remember when he did that? He was at a fire, Jesus across the way, and within just a few moments before the cock crowed, he, he denied his master three times. This man knows what it's like to face fires but fail at the fire. Do you know that when you're called beloved, that word beloved is bigger than, your fail, than the failure that you might navigate? But I love it. We, we assume that when, when he's talking about you and I being beloved, it is inferring success. What happens if it infers potential failure? What happens when you have an opportunity to bear the name? And we'll talk about what that means, and, and you don't do it. What I love about the person who's writing this is that he knows what, it's, what it looks like, what it feels like, what the reality is when, when you fail at suffering. And he also knows what it's, what it's like to be remade by that love. Like only the gospel can take a person who's failed at something and invite you and I to participate in the very thing he failed at. Amen. Like, like that is the gospel. I mean, just think about this. He failed at suffering and yet he's telling a church to endure suffering. Now, I, I love this because I really believe that Peter is talking, he's declaring this word of beloved because guess what? His feet are at the cliff of the unknown of suffering because in only about a year, this man is going to face an opportunity to either accept the punishment of following Jesus or deny him yet again. And guess what he does? History tells us he died upside down. This man is declaring not only that we're beloved, but so is he. he is, he's a beloved man who's about to face the fiery trials, and yet he's going to face the fire yet again. This time, this time, he's not going to deny the king. First thing we discover as we are considering this reality of what it looks like to be dear friends who suffer well is we're greeted with the word beloved. But then what Peter does, and I love that he does this, is that he peppers us with imperatives. Now, if you, ever, if you know what an imperative is, an imperative is a command. It's something that you're told that you are to do. There is a reason behind it. There's a person behind that statement. And after Peter says, beloved, he now goes, walks us through six imperatives. I'll walk you through them. Number one, don't be surprised, verse 12. Number two, rejoice in suffering, verse 13. Number three, let him not be ashamed, verse 16. Number four, let him glorify God, verse 16. Number five, entrust their souls, verse 19. And the last one, while doing good. Now you're like, come on, Bendix, like how are you going to put this together? Like, this is way too many. Like, how, are you serious? Is Peter really telling me to do all of this stuff? How am I, feels like I'm a tap dancing duck here. How can I put all of this stuff together and just kind of notch, like, check, check. But I, I think what Peter might be doing is, is that he might be building a scaffolding or a, like the building blocks of suffering that 
starts with something really strong, a base at the bottom, and builds itself up to the most important thing at the top. First thing that I think that he does is that he starts with this idea of do not be surprised. Don't be surprised. Now, I, I am a huge fan of 30 for 30, and there's the 85 Bears one. I don't know if you've seen it, but um, there's, a, there's a guy in there, it, Mike Singletary, who is he's a linebacker, and he's got eyes. I like this guy because he's got really big eyes like myself. And, and now he, he, he would talk about the reason that he, his eyes would get big is he, when he knew what the offense was doing, his eyes would get big. He, he, the only way that he wasn't surprised is because he knew something. When you know something, you're not surprised. He knew what the defense was doing. His eyes would get big and he would, he would be the first to meet them at a gap to stop them. Why? Because... He, he knew something. When, when you're surprised by suffering, it means that you don't know something. You don't know. So like when you're surprised at suffering, you don't know who God is and what suffering ultimately is all, all about. What I think that, what my man Peter is trying to do is he's really working hard to help us see the importance of theology as the base. Like, like you have to know something about God and about suffering. You, you have to know. It, if you are surprised when suffering comes, chances are you're probably going to now accuse God of being absent. Or your heart's going to be hard because the church wasn't there for you. When you don't, when you're surprised and you don't know or have a base of theology, and when I say theology, don't think, don't, don't think um, seminary, don't think heady, don't think classroom, think knowledge, think base of foundation of who God is, how he works, and how he operates with you. So the whole book of First Peter is just what Peter's trying to do to give this church what they need to know. To have a base. So like in 1 Peter 1.3 when he says, the great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that's important. It means you're in a family. It means he's a father. He's not going to leave you. That's a base. That we are now born into a living hope. Chapter 1 verse 3. Through the resurrection. What is that? That means that we have hope that is now we're tethered to as a result of a risen Savior. That is a base. It's foundation. It is now, it's, it's the hope that we can now build off of that. The rest of the book is nothing but knowledge. Not just knowledge here, knowledge that you massage into your heart. It's that which you repeat and you go back and you go back and you read it again and you now, you sift through it and you allow it to now, now orchestrate and orient your view of God. And so much of our Bible reading is like putting band-aids on wounds when this is supposed to be a foundation under our feet, right? So, so like what, what if we were as a church to go from just putting band-aids on to go, God, teach me this book. Allow my eyes and my heart to be, to be reoriented around who you are as a result of this book so that I can, when suffering hits, I'm not surprised. 
I'm not shocked. I'm, I'm not, I haven't done something. You're not an absentee father. You're not attacking me. You're not punishing me for something I did years ago. No, 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 no. I, because I, I have a theology, I have a right knowledge of who you are. Now I can begin to get my base wide. I know what's coming. Now that doesn't mean that there aren't tears in knowledge. Believe me, there, that does not mean that, please don't erase this and suffering from just you smiling and moving on. No, 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 this is hard. This is hard. I, lo I love this because this is, this first uh, imperative is, it's a second person plural, which is y'all. All y'all. Not just you, it's you, you and them. You, you all, right? So it's, it's a community word. This base is built in community. I mean, this is the reason, it's the reason that lead well is so important. It's just a tool. If you don't use that tool, use something else, but allow for there to be a base. He starts, he starts with, with, with this invitation of begin, begin to build a theology, but don't, don't be surprised. But then he goes from don't be surprised to, I love this one, entrust your souls to a faithful creator. We go from theology, and theology gives us the root and the base, and ultimately now begins to fuel faith. It, this word entrust is a banking word. Means just to deposit. Deposit. He says, entrust your soul. Some translations say entrust your life. Your life. All of you. To a faithful creator. It means to deposit that which is a faithful location. What you know forms now faith creates do you I, when we talk about like stir your faith or faith is high in the room what, what we're saying in that is that you as a people have a knowledge of who God is and that is determining and forming how you believe and now the fact that you are we're a people who was who are entrusting ourselves to a faithful creator one who is trustworthy close dependable loving, caring, knows you, he's faithful. He's a creator. He has all power. He has all authority. The two locked together. Peter is saying, the way you suffer well, suffer well, people. Dear friends, suffer well. How? By building a base, allowing you to begin to have a faith, entrusting your souls to a faithful creator. But then he goes on. He says this. He says, do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed. Now, in chapter 2, verse 6, this is what it says. Behold, I am laying in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, um, choice and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Well, how, how will shame, this emotion of shame, how will that be removed and replaced? He goes on. Verse 9. But you are a chosen race. 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation. What he's saying is that out of faith now comes hope. Hope that, that now that we have something bigger than ourselves, promises from a faithful creator that is replacing shame and wrapping hope around us. I love this idea of hope, especially from the Old Testament. It's this word kava, which is, it, it speaks of a rope or cord. It's like, it, it's, it's, the, it's the idea of repelling. You're, you're wrapping yourself around something that is going to hold you, but you're, you're now, you're, you're connecting it with a stronger power, and that power is meant to deliver you to where you're supposed to go. We have, the way we suffer well is as our faith is stirred from what we are knowing about who God is in community, it builds a hope, but that hope produces joy. It produces joy. Real, lasting, substantial joy. It begins to form how you feel. It, it affects your disposition. It allows for you to have to, like a light in your eyes. Begins to push the fog back. It now, this joy, love how in First Peter um, 1.8, this is what it says. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. What this whole process is supposed to do is to give you a joy and a confidence and, a, and an amazement that you know that you're not alone. This, this is what it looks like to suffer well. But then this actually impacts and affects our deeds. Like for so many of us, we're like, we're just, we feel like we have to just do the right thing. Just do the right thing. Just live right, live right, live right. Well, how do you live right when you're facing pain, when you're facing challenge, when you're overwhelmed with, with tension? How do you do that? It comes as a result of how you start your view of God, forming a faith, shaping a hope, expressing itself in joy, affecting now how you live, how you live in the midst of tension. And guess what that does? Guess what that does? That is the very thing that glorifies God. Like when the text says glorify God, you're like, well, how do you do that? Like if I'm being told to glorify God, man, how the, how the heck do you do that? I can't, I can't just stir that up. Although I did hear a, a, a pastor, he said, um, he was asked a question, how do you glorify God? And he said, the same way you do at a water fountain, you show up thirsty and you drink. So when, when we drink deep of the beauty of God, forming our faith, shaping our hope, now expressing itself in joy in our hearts and then through our lives, now fueling good works on not just like one good work, we're talking about a present tense reality this glorifies God. Now, what, what I love about what Peter is doing with us is all he's doing is he's saying, you know what? This is how Jesus lived. He lived from the words of his father. He authored and perfected a faith that he now gives to us. In fact, in Luke 23, the last words that he says, to you, O Father, I entrust 
my soul. He now, for the joy set before him, for the joy, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Now, as a result of that, now he becomes the one who doesn't live to be served, but to, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. And John 17 is nothing but him receiving and giving glory. He glorified the Father. This is how Jesus, this is how he lived. This is how he lived inside of suffering and outside of suffering. This is a worldview for one's life. We're talking about a theology of suffering. Man, this, you've been asking, well, when are we going to get it? Well, you got it. <laughs> like, this is what Peter is, is legitimately unpacking through dense content. And I know what you're asking. You're like, well, Bendix, I mean, give me some scenarios. Give me some scenarios. Like, how is this supposed to actually work out practically? I see your question, and I will raise you. And this, is what, this is what Peter says. Peter, this is in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. This is what it says. I love this. Get ready for this. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, Drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So you might be asking, where is, where, what, what exactly are you talking about when it comes to said scenarios? Great question. So what I think, what I think that Peter is basically saying is he's saying this. Is Jesus worthy of my body? And is Jesus worthy of me being rejected? Is he worthy of my body? Sexual ethic? How you operate with your body, is he worthy? Is he worth my body? Is he worth rejection? And then he throws us to this. So what he says is he says, he's asking the question, is he worthy of your body? You've got to answer that because that's like, you're talking about tension. You're talking about pressure. You're talking about persecution in a world that says, do you, you just, you go for it. Whatever you want, sky's the limit, knock yourself out. And now you're being told that there's a new way to live, that Jesus is actually worthy of your body, that you can't call the shots with your body now. And that Jesus is worthy of rejection. That now, not that going out of step with the culture is going is to cost you some things. It's going to maybe, may cost you some friendships. It may cost you the people point, pointing at you and calling you names. Like, like, what if you have to answer the question, when it comes to your body, when it comes to rejection, is, is he worth it? And now that's where you go, what do I believe? Who, who is this God? Oh, well, he's father. Man, that's, that's really firm. And that creates faith, faith that is rooted where you go, I entrust my body to a faithful creator. In spite of all of the desires that I have, the passions that are raging, the longings, the desire to be married, and you go, I entrust my singleness to a faithful creator. I entrust it. I, if the only way you deposit it, if you deposit something, that means you let it go. 
and you turn and you walk away. You know, deposit doesn't mean, all right, I deposited. It's deposited. Hello, it's deposited. No, no, no. It's released. It's entrusted. And you actually believe that the one you're giving it to is greater than you. This is, this is what faith that now creates hope, hope that forms joy, joy that now forms and shapes and motivates you in regards to your sexuality and your rejection. Well, Corey, what about some additional scenarios? Recently heard of a gentleman over the last year, was a very successful project manager at a, tech, at a tech technology company, and this company um, received a bid to do work for Pornhub. And this gentleman was going to oversee that. And he had to make some decisions. What's he going to do? Is Jesus more valuable than his job? This is real. Look, this is, this is going to, this, this reality is going to be future tense for many of us. We're going to have to make some decisions. Is Jesus more valuable than my job? And so he had to ask the questions. What do I believe? Who is this God? What does it look like for me to entrust myself into that reality? And he began to find hope and joy. And his next step was to tell the company that he couldn't take on the project, resulting in his termination. Well, what about your comfort, Corey? Like, what, like is Jesus greater than my comfort? One of the privileges that I've had over the last few, maybe uh, six to eight months, is to watch our church grow in a passion for foster care. And what I've seen in so many foster families, we have about 12 families that we've gone from two to 12. And, and to watch families have a theology of, of knowing what it's going to cost them when they do this, but that there is something that is driving them internally regarding who God is and what he says in his word that now fuels faith, shapes hope, motivates joy, and enables them to, to do good works in spite of horrific accusations from parents outside of themselves. Cops being called on them for, 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 for accusations that are not true. The process of, of things being ripped away. A, a child you've invested in for a year and a half now, now going back to a home and your heart is crushed and yet, you, you were called to this, and now, now you go back to, like, how do you endure that? You go back to where you began. Even the question of, is Jesus greater than my life? Than my life. I, I recently, I discovered two people that I cannot wait to meet in heaven. Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, October 16th, 1555. Um, Queen Mary, Bloody Mary, um, arrested them and planned to put them to the stake. 
And words, the, the words were recorded as such. Latimer says this, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust will never be put out. And they held, they, they raised their hands and they worshiped as they died. How do you, how do you live like that? I mean, I don't have what it takes. I can't do that. How, how do we do that? Two men whose heart and life built on the, the, the beauty of God that formed a faith, shaped a hope, motivated a joy, and led them to live and ultimately die. Fifty years later, the candle had become a torch. All of England now began to wrap around the beauty of Jesus, many believe, as a result of what these two men had done. So the question is this. Out of all of the imperatives, is there any indicatives? So an indicative is not what you do. It's what's been done on your behalf. And there's one indicative. It's in the middle of this text. And this is what it says. This is verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. You might be asking, what's God's role in my suffering? If this is what it looks like for me to suffer well, what's God's role? God's role is that as you suffer for the name, man, we live in a world where we, man, we are professionals at protecting and creating our own name. We promote it. We, we scrub it. We ensure that people know as much about us, about our CV, about our potential, May we know and love our name, and yet what we're invited into is now this beautiful transition from us focusing on, on our name to now being empowered to focus on the name. Amen. To now live and to, to hold up and to hold out the name. And when we do that, the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Rests. Corey, what happens if I get fired? Spirit of glory and of God rests. What, what happens if I lose friends and I'm lonely and, and I'm single for the rest of my life? Spirit of glory and of God rests. It stays. Ain't going nowhere. Rests on you. It rests on you. Let, 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 me, let me end, end with this. Um, this is... This is probably my favorite. I'm not much of an art guy, but I have this as a picture in our Grace Loves headquarters. This is uh, John Georges Weber. This is in 1883, and this is called Missionary Journeys. And what, what you'll notice is, um, one, there's the, 
crucifixion of St. Bartholomew right above these priests and pastors. And you can see that they're lavish, comfortable, they have fine clothes, they are, are enjoying themselves. And you have a friar. This friar is worn out, he's not very well fed, and he's pointing to his wrist. It's almost as if he's saying, dear friends, don't forget the crucifixion. Don't, don't forget the sufferings of the name. Dear friends, suffer well. I wonder if Peter were to come and to present his letter, these texts, to a Western church. I wonder if this would be the picture that would be represented. Comfort, lavish lives, and looking at the invitation of suffering and scoffing at it. We, we live in a culture where Christianity is so much about my comfort. Peter is inviting us to the edge. And he's inviting us to suffer well. I can't think of a better way to end this than by, as a family, receiving the Lord's Supper. Sharing with him in his suffering at the cross. I, I know what, what I've talked about tonight has been, it's been a lot. It's been a little bit overwhelming. We're trying to contextualize it. We're trying to bring it in. And as, as, you're, as you're preparing yourself for tonight, I, wanted, I want you just to consider, you, you may be at a place where you're being invited. You, you are being tenderly um, led to see that much of your Bible reading is putting band-aids on wounds. And the Spirit of God is inviting you to, to take his word and make it a foundation that you stand on. For some of us, that's not the problem. For some of us, it's we are having a really tough time entrusting ourselves, depositing who we are to himself. I think those are the two main spaces, at least for me they are. And so as, as, we, as we take this moment, this moment of, of com communion is about one man who took his life with his friends and he took a bread and he broke it and he gave it and he said, this is my body broken for you the one who entrusted himself to us, he gives us his very body. He broke it and he gave it. He said, whenever you eat this, eat this in remembrance of me. Church, let's take and eat broken body of Jesus. And he took the cup. He said, this is my blood poured out poured out for all mankind for sins past present and future
for a ratification of a new covenant cut in his blood. Oh, Lord Jesus, will you imbue this cup with your presence? Will you allow for us as we drink it to drink in your beloved love? God, the reality that you are a faithful creator, that the spirit of glory and of God wants to rest on us as we bear your name. Church, let's take and drink. Lord, we love you. We entrust ourselves afresh. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.